Today, we continue our series on the book of Colossians. This small book can aid us immensely in our need to keep Christ in focus, no matter what we are facing, what we are doing, or how our daily lives might look. I believe we will be tremendously blessed as we continue to study this little book together. And last week, we focused in on what Paul calls the preeminence of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. The dictionary definition of preeminence is the fact of surpassing all others or simply superiority, superiority. In other words, we saw last week how Christ is above and before all else, all else. And if you missed that sermon last week, just get on YouTube and search Edmund Adventist. You can pull it up, just Colossians part two. While you're at it, you could check out part one as well. But we're going to continue going through this. And and when I started this series, I, I mentioned that we were going to go through this book and take it verse by verse, verse by verse. And so today, I want to do something a little bit different. We're actually going to go back, and we are going to look at the last four verses that we looked at last week. And we're going to spend all of our time there today because we're going to view them through a, a different lens. Within the theology of righteousness by faith, Paul unveils the full sufficiency of Christ when it comes to our salvation. So let's begin there in Colossians 1, verse 20. It says, And through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were, is that, is that future, present, or past tense? Past tense. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This word, if, can be troubling for some people because it can almost read as if you don't continue in the faith, you're no longer saved. You become re-separated from God. You are now once again hostile in your mind toward him. But is that what Paul is saying? Is that the point he's trying to make? Is that what he's trying to, to get at? In moments like this, where Paul seems to say something that makes us feel scared, or worried, or confused, I like to remember a simple statement that he made in Acts 20. Verse 27, he said, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul wants you and I, as the reader, to understand that context is key. Context is very important. 
A text out of context is a pretext for a proof text. You take the text out of context, you just take that one text, and then you can build a whole theology based on that. You can make it say whatever you want to say. And so this, this happens a lot, and because of that, it's no surprise that some people come to this one verse that says, if, and then they build an entire theology off of it. There's a, there's a whole doctrinal system that's been built which says you can lose your salvation. It can be taken away from you, from the enemy, from something in this world. But is that true? Is that true? What the gospel teaches is that you are safe and sound in Jesus. Did you know that that word that is translated as saved or, or in the verb tense as salvation, it literally means safe and sound. Safe and sound. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can choose to reject it. An important distinction. A pastor friend of mine shared this illustration. He said, you can't lose your salvation like you lose your keys. Sometimes we misplace our keys, right? Has anybody ever had that experience before? I see some heads nodding. They fall between the couch cushions. They, they, they get left behind at church. They, they stay in the jacket pocket, and the jacket gets hung up in the closet. Whatever might happen. Our salvation in Christ is not like that. It's not a yo-yo game where we constantly go back and forth between being in a state of saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved. On the other hand, we could choose to take our car keys and to walk out and stand by the lake and just chuck our keys into the middle of the lake, deciding we no longer want them. I don't want to drive that car. <laughs> we can choose to reject the free gift that has been given to us. But that's completely different from making a mistake or slipping up. Salvation does not come and go with good and bad choices. If it did, then salvation would be through works, not grace. Salvation would be up to us, not Jesus. Yet this, this error runs rampant throughout Christianity. It is my belief that a lot of people use this wrong type of theology because they are into controlling God's people with fear. If I can make you, as the pastor, if I can make you fearful, then I can make you jump through hoops. I can control your behavior. And unfortunately, I think a lot of well-meaning Christians have that as an ulterior motive. Instead of teaching Christians who they are in Christ and entrusting them to the Holy Spirit, to bring about the conviction, to bring about the change. Again, just like most of the issues that we discuss up here week after week, this one comes from lack of belief. Lack of belief. When we don't believe that the Holy Spirit will accomplish 
what Jesus has already said he will, then we start meddling and trying to control other people's thoughts and actions, and we do it by using the tools of the enemy, namely fear, guilt, condemnation, and shame. We know from Scripture, just like with the car keys illustration, that we cannot lose our salvation in that sense of the word. If you struggle with that, if you doubt that, read read the last few verses of Romans 8. I think Romans 10, though, makes a pretty convincing point on this topic. Romans 10, 14, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, does all time mean for just a moment? Does all time mean until you slip up and make a mistake? I want to take God at his word. I'm going to believe that when he says all time, he means all time. Yet the verse, it it says that, that we have been perfected for all time, even while we are still going through the process of sanctification. Which means there is a difference between our position and our condition. A difference between our position and our condition. There's a difference between what we possess in Christ and how we practice what we possess in Christ. That's what Paul is teaching there. You are in Christ. And according to Paul, when you are in Christ, you are holy, you are perfect, you are blameless, yet you still have a choice to make every single day. Every single day. Will you decide to live from God or try to find some other source to bring you life? That's the question. And we, we wrestle with this choice every day, sometimes all throughout the day. But where do we place our faith and our trust? Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. <laughs> that, this would be such a great time to say, like, in, in Sabbath school class today, we, we had a group in there, and I kept telling them, like, y'all should preach my sermon today. It's, it's amazing how the Spirit works because I had this sermon prepared and ready to go and so much that came up in Sabbath school was just like, it, it, I just kept saying like, well, I'm going to talk about that in my sermon or expand on that and then you start preaching my sermon. Where do we place our faith and trust? In ourselves and what we can accomplish or in the works of Christ that have already been accomplished? Do we strive each day to work real hard to do better or do we abide each day resting in Christ and his finished work knowing that his spirit as it as is at work within us to bring about change to bring about good works to bring about obedience to the way that God is leaving us Don't mishear me y'all I'm not saying that change is bad. I'm not saying good works are bad. I'm not saying obedience is bad. But where are these things coming from? What is our heart's intention? Let's get back to this Colossians verse at hand. If indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. This word, if, it's a little word, but it it means a lot in this verse. In the Greek, this word, the way it's used, it's it's known as the first-class condition. The first-class condition. This means that whatever is said is determined as if it had already been fulfilled. So if we retranslate this using the intended condition of the word if, it might read something like this. If indeed you continue, and you certainly will, or if you indeed continue, because you will certainly continue, in the faith, you're going to find yourself stable and steadfast, not shifting or losing focus, not allowing your thoughts or your feelings or the lies of the enemy throw you off course. So this is not what our Heavenly Father has uh, promised to do for us in the future, but it's what he has already done for us. And if we will set our minds on him, Every single one of those things that that he lists right here would be true for us every day, all day. Could you imagine? I mean, mean, this, this is the abundant life that Christ talks about. This is the life in the spirit that Christ is offering to you to walk through and no matter what you face, no matter what you come across, you know that you are not shifting from your hope of the gospel in Jesus and that you can remain steadfast, stable. But there is an alternative. There's an alternative to walking in truth. Paul talks about that as well in a few places. But in Galatians 5, he he gives this, this list. And it's a list of what believers can do when they turn so far away from the truth, the hope of the gospel, to instead go back to walking after the flesh. Paul lists sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, hatred, jealousy, selfish ambition, drunkenness, strife, and he goes on and on. Not a good list. Not a fun list. Not a helpful list. And it's quite a sobering image of how far a believer can drift from the truth of the gospel. Yet, in our Colossians verse, Paul uses this first-class condition. And it reminds me of another verse where he says that love hopes all things and believes all things. And I think the idea there is Paul saying, I believe in you because Christ is in you. I believe that you will continue walking in the faith. I believe that you will be steadfast. I believe that you will stand strong in the face of adversity. Whatever the world throws at you, whatever the enemy places in your path, I believe that you will not look to other sources for life. And there's there's almost this sense of incredulity. Like he's saying, how could you even go after anything else? 
Paul wrote this in Galatians 1. I am astonished. Some versions say marvel. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel. He's astonished, shocked, and marveling that they would turn away from Christ who is our everything. These are believers he's talking to. Why would you taste something so good so delicious, so nutritious, and then go search out the rotten scraps in a dumpster. That's essentially what he's saying here. Like, this doesn't make sense to me all. Help me understand how you went from this to that. And then the, the list that I just read from Galatians 5, it's almost repeated verbatim. In 1 Corinthians 6. These early churches had problems, y'all. So Paul, he, he lists all of these same sins, but then he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is who you were, but you are not that person anymore. Amen. This is encouraging, y'all. So he's saying, so why would you walk in that way anymore? You're not that person. That person's dead. This also shed some light on how we should approach a fellow Christian who's maybe struggling with some of these things that Paul lists, wrestling with these things in their daily life. And some believers get way, way off track. But how should we deal with them? How did Paul deal with them? Some folks' idea of helping an erring believer is is just by highlighting everything that they're doing wrong and how everything that they are doing is inconsistent with life and the spirit. But what they are doing is merely focusing in on the symptoms, highlighting the symptoms. And symptoms are merely outcroppings of an actual illness. And the actual sickness here is that they aren't living out of who they are in Christ not living out of who they are in Christ. They've lost sight of their identity. Or maybe they were never truly taught what the Bible says, what the gospel teaches about their identity in Christ. And this is why I make such a big deal out of whether we consider ourselves saints or sinners. Because it is a very important biblical truth Related to identity. Identity. Just a little reminder. We know that that the enemy, the devil, is the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning. And so that's what he did in the Garden of Eden. He lied. But specifically, what did he lie to Eve about? He lied to her about her identity. We see in the creation story, 
that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they got together and they said, let us make mankind, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. We will make them to be like us. And the serpent comes up to Eve and says, hey, if you eat this fruit, then you will be like God. No, her identity was that she already was like God, made in God's image. But the lies of the enemy, then and now, is to get us to forget or to live in a state of unbelief concerning our identity in Christ. So depending on which Bible translation you're looking at, believers are called saints, holy ones, or righteous ones approximately 240 times. 240 times. We are called saints because of our position in Christ, not because of our maturity and behavior. I mean, we, we, we saw the issues happening in the, the Corinthian church, but Paul began that letter, I am writing to the saints in Corinth. <laughs> so we are called saints because of our position in Christ. But in contrast, unbelievers are called sinners approximately 340 times. 340 times. It seems evident to me that the term saint is used to refer to the believer and the term sinner is used in reference to the non-believer. At the core of every believer is a righteous seed that God has sown. It is counterproductive to identify Christians as sinners and then to expect them to act like saints. If, if you're just a sinner, what does that mean you're going to do? Why are you called a sinner? What are you identifying with? Are you identifying with the sin that Paul says three times in Romans 6 that you have been set free from? Or are you identifying with who you are in Christ? As Christians, we're not trying to become children of God. We are children of God. Becoming more and more like Christ through his spirit that is at work within us. We're not working for our salvation. According to Philippians 2.12, we are working it out. We're receiving it, we're believing it, and we're walking it out in faith. And other people are seeing that. That is why it's so important to understand positional sanctification. What God has already accomplished for us and who we already are in Christ and progressive sanctification, making real in our experience what is already true about us. Positional sanctification is accepting and believing what Christ has done for us, and progressive sanctification is walking it out in faith, even when our situations, even when our feelings may try and convince us otherwise. Our position and identity in Christ are the basis for growing and living in Christ. If acting selfishly and sinfully are symptoms 
then the sickness is unbelief in our identity in Christ. We cannot cure a sickness by focusing on the symptoms. But praise God, Jesus is the cure. The cure is knowing Jesus and who he is and who he is in us and who we are because of what he did on the cross. I've said it before, but I feel it bears repeating. We are not behavioral modificationists. We are resurrectionists. Our call is to take people and to show them that the person that they were died, was drowned in the waters of baptism. And they are now a new creation, resurrected into a new life in Christ. A new creature, a new creation, renewed mind, transplanted heart. We're to be radical examples about how the truth sets us free. And going back to that long list of grievous sins that Paul had to deal with in Galatians 5, he didn't walk in with a belt point out every little thing that was wrong, but instead he went after the heart because he knew that they had simply forgotten who they were in Christ. And this is why legalism and behavioral modification always falls flat in the end. Can't keep it up. The enemy is completely fine. And listen to this. The enemy is completely fine with us getting close enough to the truth that it makes us feel better than others, but not close enough to experience the true transformation that Christ offers that will then draw others to us. When we put the focus on ourselves, then we can make a few lifestyle changes. And we start to feel pretty good. But it also leads us to forget the truth that our only adequacy comes from Christ. Our only adequacy comes from Christ. He gets all the glory, honor, and praise. All sufficiency in the Christian life comes from Christ. Rest in him, and you can have assurance that you are safe and sound. Abide in him, and you can expect the good fruit will come because he said it will. He is the vine. Are you abiding in him? Sin made humanity sick, but Jesus is the cure. Amen and amen. As we close, I'd like to offer you a practical way to apply something from today's sermon. So pull out your phones, take a picture of this week's secret place practice. For those of you that are are maybe seeing this for the first time, I I like to give my congregation some homework throughout the week. I don't want us to get so caught up calling ourselves Seventh-day Adventists that we forget that we should also be seven-day Adventists, that we don't just come to church and focus on Jesus and talk about him and then just go about our lives for the other six days of the week. So in, in the hopes that, that what I've shared here today, what, what scripture has spoken to your heart will, will sink in a little bit more. Here's the homework. Have you allowed the sufficiency of Christ to permeate every aspect of your daily life? If not, 
what might be holding you back from accepting that blessed reality? What's in the way? Spend some time in prayer and reflection this week on the truth that Christ has already provided everything you need for both practical living and salvation. And the, the accompanying text there, 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So before we have our closing prayer, um, Chongo, would you, would you be willing to come up and, and pray with people afterwards along with me? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite Chongo to come forward. He'll, he'll stand at the foot of those steps. I'll have our benediction. I'll come down here. And, and for those of you that wish to be dismissed, that'll be the time to head on to potluck. But if there's anybody here who has any specific needs, any, any special requests, maybe, maybe you've got a praise on your heart and, and you just got to share it with somebody, then either Chongo or myself, we would love to, to speak with you and to pray with you, to lift that petition, lift that praise up to the throne of God. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his sufficiency. And Lord, when, when, we, when we start to doubt that, when we're in a place of unbelief and, and we feel that we need to pick up the slack, that we need to add, may we be rooted and grounded in the truth that all sufficiency is found in Christ and that he offers it to us freely. May we not focus on the sin that so easily besets us, but instead turn our focus and attention to Christ and know that we are safe and sound and allow his spirit to fight the battle and remind us that we have been set free. We're at battle with a toothless enemy, a defeated foe. So we claim the power of Christ in our lives. And Lord, not just for ourselves, but give us opportunities to share this gospel message with others that don't know you, that, that are, are enslaved and in bondage. Lord, may they see your light shining through us and fall in love with you because of it. We give this all to you and we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen.